Can you hear Dorothy chewing? (laughs) (laughs) I don't get it. Hey everyone. Welcome to I Don't Get It. Uh, we are a podcast about performance in Edmonton, uh, and we are proud members of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. I'm Paul. And I'm Fonda. And we have a special guest today. Woo! Who are you? I'm Laura Rabu. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and I'm returning. Thanks for coming back, Laura. Awesome. Yeah, it's um, it's just there is a, a a veritable buffet of performances in Edmonton right now. It's one of those those weeks when five or six things are running in tandem. Uh, so there's a lot to see. We uh, we got out to a bunch of it. Yeah, and so we needed to pull in some help, of course, and in the form of Laura. So thanks for thanks again for coming. We're gonna um, I'm gonna make a note by saying if you hear some odd chewing noises, that is a four month old Labrador puppy chewing on a pig ear in the corner of the podcast studio. Just in case you hear something weird, it's not Paul. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, um, so Laura, Laura, what did we see first? Uh, We went to Onyegan. Uh, Yeah, I said it right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they say it about a zillion times in the show so that you do say it right because it could be like on again or... One gin. One gin. One gin. I like that one. Yeah. Um, the, one of the coolest starts to a musical I've seen in a while um, with a shot of vodka delivered to the first couple rows of the audience. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So we get in our Russian on. So, um, Laura, um, can you tell us a little bit about what we saw in Onyegin? What did you like? What, how did it work? Awesome. I, it was like being at the, a really great party, like, the whole time. Um, it, was, it was a very, like... I, I don't know, like unpretentious show in a way because they kept sort of breaking the fourth wall in this really like fun way and hanging out with the audience basically, just randomly sort of, you know, like talking to them. And I don't know, it was great. Yeah, I, it, I had a, it. it had a really nice sense of humor about itself, I felt. They kind of kept pointing to, you know, how the bleak themes, um, one of the lyrics, it's a really simple lyric, but it's like, it's Russia, it's winter, it's a long time ago. <laughs> And that's yeah. sort of how it sets up. But um, so yeah. going into kind of more of the, the characters in the show, yeah. um, Alessandro Giuliani plays Evgeny Onyegin. And, um, you know, he play the Onyegin is a dandy. So he's just this sort of like dapper, very good looking, super egotistical um, guy who comes in um, visiting his best friend Lensky in um, a, you know, sort of a smaller Russian town uh, or more remote, I guess. And they um, and there there, of course, are parties that they go to. And at one of these parties, um, he sees um Lenski's soon-to-be sister-in-law Tatiana, mm-hmm. um, played by played brilliantly by Megro. If anyone doesn't want to be Megro by the end of this show, like I don't know, something is wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, how did what did you feel about um, their relationship and how it starts? Oh, I th- yeah, I thought it was a very um, uh, complex and shaded relationship, especially for a musical. I, I thought that that they did a really nice job of. Um, of blending sort of like uh, the the play and the story with also complicated music as well. So we got to see uh, how they got together and that they that their love was going to be complicated. You knew that mm-hmm. it it wasn't going to be an easy road like the other couple who just were 
happily in love and everything was great. Yeah. Which yeah. I, you know, I that meant something to me, I think, and a lot of women in yeah. the audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, which and also, that even though they were, um, that Lensky and um, his Olga had, you know, like a great love to begin with, it all quickly goes to hell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, because of Onyegin, because of his, yeah. you know, like ego, essentially. Yeah. Um, and but, the duel. And the duel. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk about this duel. There should be, like, can you imagine, like, they did this wonderful job of just, like, like putting in modern elements into this 18th century story so that you could imagine that you were just at a party with these people. And then you just, you thought, like, could you imagine if someone insulted somebody at a party and then that was what led to the challenge and then they were going to go out on White Avenue and just, like, pull pistols with their friends like and one of them was gonna die like and one of them has to essentially get shot or die you know like it's it's that's that's the rules of the duel duels in russia at this time when pushkin wrote the original um story were actually very regulated there were strict rules there was someone running the duel if you didn't show up you were essentially just shamed for life um it was it was a big deal so you know when lensky challenges him to the duel there's no turning back from that yeah, and uh, and and of course he does it because Anyagin was flirting with Olga to make him jealous because Anyagin just got bored. Like what a douche. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, yeah, but there's like a lot of con- social consequences for insulting people. Like that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, also um, actually. Props to Olga, the um, who uh, played by Lauren Jackson. I thought that the the three uh, there were actually a cast of five, and as well as me, or a cast of sorry, no, there were Six. five. Seven. Seven? Wait. There was, oh, yeah, seven. Yeah, yeah. And um, there was, uh, yeah, the two others who played many others, using air quotations, because they make a joke about how they play many others and not just a single character. Um, but yes, actually, all of the, all of the performances were, com- were really fantastic. Again, the, um, you noted that the music was um, complex, like the harmonies. I just, um, yeah. the, so written by Emil Gladstone and Veda Hilly, mm-hmm. um, two female playwrights and yeah. composers like how great is that uh, yeah that's pretty awesome and the music was complex and there was a cellist and there and then also the um the cast could play the music as well so they would just once in a while be playing the violin or or the guitar yeah like, they pick up an instrument an electric mm-hmm. guitar it was it was this really amazing like blend of like almost <laughs> the dog is fighting with paul <laughs> It's this really amazing blend of like almost like a chamber orchestra, and then um, yeah. sometimes it was like I don't know, like the Talking Heads almost, or like David Burns esque kind of, or something like a music video or something like that. Like, yeah, like it was really interesting. I you, loved it. You could kind of tell like, it got a little bit into sort of like that kind of like pop musical feel. Where I mean, Meg Rose' beautiful solo, the "I Will Die, I Will Die," like we almost die with yeah. the tenor guitar that she picks up. Like mm. that was just. I mean, it's in all of the press shots because it's one of the coolest moments in the show like she just looks so badass and is like amazing and she's also just singing about how she loves this guy and he's a jerk and (laughs) you know like it's you know not passing the Bechdel test at all but Mm -hmm. um, it's still I enjoyed the story for you know like an old Russian story based on a Pushkin um, poem I'm not sure that you could expect it to be super progressive um but to not not to give away the ending but she still ends up um holding her own i think Mm -hmm. um which was refreshing to see yeah yeah awesome 
Yeah, his character wasn't that redeem, uh, redeemable for me. I had trouble wanting them to be together sometimes, mm-hmm. with the Onyegin. Yeah, I kind of feel like you're allowed not to like him. Like, yeah. you know, he and when he's left in the end, you know, as he is left, um, we'll kind of leave it out there. Uh, he, uh, you know, you feel he deserves it, and that's fine. <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, interesting presentation. Catalyst Theatre brought the production in from um, the Arts Club in Vancouver. Um, so, And they're doing a huge cross-Canada tour, so it was really neat to have it stop here for us. Yeah, okay. Next up, what did we see next, Laura? We saw Shakespeare's R&J, um, and this was part of the Roxy Performance Series at Theatre Network. Yeah, um, it's it presented Tele- by Kill Your Television. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah, directed by Kevin Sutley. Mm-hmm. I saw the original uh, production of this uh, when I was 16 years old. Oh, my God. Uh, and I I remember just loving it. I remember um, it was like the f- I said afterwards, I was like, I've never understood Romeo and Juliet until now. Like, <laughs> even, though, even though you were in that show I know. <laughs> like two years before. <laughs> yeah, and, and I said that to Kevin suddenly He looked at me like, you're an idiot. And I was like, <laughs> I know. But I, I loved, uh, I, I felt like it was like, I don't know, there's something about having something stripped down to its um, absolute sort of base core mm. that lets you sort of see uh, the structure of how it's made. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty fascinating to yeah. see. Yeah, so the show is, um, it's an all-male Romeo and Juliet um, based, you know, sort of um, abstractly in a Catholic boys' school. They set that up with sort of sounds and a little bit of, um, you know, coordination in the beginning, uh, doing some verse and stuff like that. That sounds like they're in, you know, school. They're taking trigonometry. They're taking all these classes. They just set it up with, like, a few verses. And then they go straight into the Shakespeare the Shakespeare script of R&J, of Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, yeah, it unfolds from there. A uh, cast of four young male actors, really great talents. I think up and coming uh, in Edmonton, we had Oscar Dirks um, and Luke Tellier playing the titular couple. Um, and then Braden Dowler Coltman and Corbin Kushnerick rounding out all of the other roles in the show. Um, uh, those two, um, Braden Dowler Coltman and Corbin Kushnerick playing the nurse and priest. Uh, um, uh, I had that in the wrong order. <laughs> um, Corbin Kishnerik as the nurse was fantastic. And I really enjoyed uh, Brayden's performance as Mercutio, um, also the priest. Uh, great. Because they're, you know, they're really the ones who do all of the all of the mo- shaking and moving in the show. Um, R&J themselves are just kind of like around, looking pretty, being young. <laughs> um, so, I mean, comparing it to uh, the production that you saw um, in 2002, um, because it has been talked about for years after that as one of, you know, like um, something that launched, you know, like Ron Peterson and Nathan Kakao and Kevin Corey, um, and, like in like the, their acting careers in Edmonton on the, you know, the professional stage. Um how did you feel about the the placement of an all male Romeo and Juliet um in this in the current milieu? <laughs> well, yeah. <clears throat> I'd like to say that first there was no uh, Treaty 6 acknowledgement before this show where there was one before on Yegan. So that was interesting. Um uh so there's like little political things that were kind of um making it so that I was having trouble enjoy the art. Mm-hmm. And one of the things was uh, seeing uh, four white males on stage. Um, I thought that was a pretty bold 
choice to have uh, in this current political climate. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because when I was 16, it wouldn't have even clocked it. And I would have been able to get past that and think this is a universal telling of Romeo and Juliet in a way Mm -hmm. that gets down to its sort of essence and its, you know, its Mm -hmm. base emotions. And it sort of gets all that other stuff kind of out of the way. But Mm -hmm. um, as I've lived my life and now as I'm an older woman who's been in theater. You're so not old. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm older than 16. The the original show is 15 or 16 years ago, about that. Um, And I, I... I get that at that time, you know, like we hadn't had a lot of movement with, um, you know, LGBT rights. Um, gay marriage was still like really hotly contested. Yeah. Um, it was it was a very different show than I think. Yes. Yeah. And now it means something quite different, I think, to have four white males uh, saying Shakespeare on stage. And to me, uh, Shakespeare's become kind of a bit of a, a tool of colonial oppression, for, like uh, just from my involvement with I Don't Know More and all that kind of stuff. So I have a different take on it. And now when I see it, it reflects to me a lot of, uh, it doesn't reflect universality, uh, universal mm-hmm. emotions anymore. Now the politics, my politics are getting in the way of me being able to just sit and enjoy the language, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. Yeah, considering that even when Shakespeare wrote the play originally, it still would have been done by all men. Yeah, so we've taken a step backwards. <laughs> yeah, like so the, how, how yeah. much has it really grown? But I will say about the production, um, fantastic performances. Uh, the choreography on stage um, is really nicely staged. You did really get the full show um, from just four guys on stage with a red sash. Yes. Um, um, but yeah, at the same time, there's so much stuff happening um, with challenging the gender ideologies and Shakespeare and things like that. You wonder, you wonder, like, um, how, how is remounting the the same production in the same, in the same, you know, sort of way? Is that, how is that, is that progressing? And Catholic school to someone in Canada um, is, means that there would have been Indigenous people there as well. Like, I know that my grandfather, who actually was not Indigenous, went to a residential school or a Catholic boarding school. Mm. But, you know, where was that element? I don't know. I feel like it was almost, like, politically tone-deaf in a way. Like, or it just it just wasn't letting politics into mm-hmm. its production. It didn't place itself in any really, in, in any real time period. It yeah. seemed very, just very kind of, like, um, it, was, it was very sparsely staged. So you didn't yeah. have a lot of... Um, um, you know, insight into like where, uh, where, or when it might have been. Yeah. Um, and you know, and also using a little bit of Midsummer Night's Dream and making the fairy jokes. I thought yeah. I was just kind of like, really, I don't know about. That. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, it was overall. I mean, performances are great. Um, yeah. and it is a chance to go and and uh, hear the language because most of it really is just the straight up uh, Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but. Uh, what, what else? What else could we see? You know. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a that was a pretty good um, roundup for our first two. Um, thanks so much for helping us out, Laura. It was a really big, really big job this week to go see all this stuff. So, <laughs> thanks for thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me. We'll see you again, hopefully. Awesome. Okay.
So that was Shakespeare's R&J. Thanks again to Laura Rabu for joining us and helping us out uh, cover all of the things this week. Um, Mm -hmm. Paul, so we've got um, something exciting coming up on February 20th. Hit me with the info, Fonda. Alberta Women Entrepreneurs is inviting everyone in YAG to attend their Learning Day on February 20th in Edmonton. It's a one-day conference featuring keynotes and workshops on human resources, operations, finance, marketing, technology, and mindset. Boom. Entrepreneurs will get tangible skills, information, and access to expert resources to help build your business. Plus, it's a good way to meet other entrepreneurs and make connections in the community. The registration is only $129, and podcast listeners will get 10% off if you use the promo code PODCAST, that's capital P, PODCAST, at checkout. Um, You can register at the link on our show notes uh, on our website, and be sure to use the promo code PODCAST to get your discount. Cool. All right, Paul, what's next? What? is next. We saw uh, Shaping Sound, Travis Wall's Shaping Sound, which was presented by Alberta Ballet, but is a is a touring show. Travis Wall's name might be familiar to you. Uh, he is uh, a co-creator of So You Think You Can Dance, um, an Emmy-winning uh, choreographer, uh, and the, the star, the writer, performer, um, uh, star, centerpiece of Shaping Sound. Yeah. So this was, um, uh, I, I think, either a second or even third show of the Shaping Sound series. It's called After the Curtain. Um, and we, in the pre-show talk, we note uh, that they they talk about how it's a lot more narrative than their previous shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering, what, what were your thoughts on some of the narrative in this show? Sure. So it's sort of like a like a like a backstage sort of drama, I guess, for lack of a better term. It's sort of set in the in the 40s. Ish. Ish. Yeah. Um, I sort of couldn't the, decide whether it was 40s or 20s, I thought, but whatever. Right, with sort of like a, a Baz Luhrmann-ish flair to it all. Um, but it's sort of about the, the cast and, and, and people of this show that's going on and their interconnected uh, personal lives and personal tragedies and, and feelings about, about each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so... Uh, it was told uh, through dance as well as um, like these little sort of uh, uh, stage setting um, notes that would pop up or scene setting notes as mm-hmm. the the character who Travis Wall was playing, Vincent, was was writing about, you know, recording all of these things that would happen. So he would sort of be at a typewriter on stage and you would see on this screen that came down the words, the words he was typing. Mm-hmm. Also, really handy off the top, they sort of did like a, a cast of characters introduction with the same convention. Yeah. Where it was like... Because there's 12, there's uh, a bunch of dancers. It was a complex melange of people backstage there. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so everyone sort of right off the top in that way was sort of introduced and got like a line defining their character. Yeah. Uh, which was pretty useful uh, for subsequent scenes and in telling the story otherwise mostly through dance. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone's sort of interpersonal relationships were, were clarified off the top. Um, yeah, you kind of wish they would do that with some Shakespeare shows sometimes. Yeah, you know, oh, when yeah. there's like a cast of 24 and you can't really keep track. Although I will say that you know they could have done a little bit more to delineate visually between the characters. Mm-hmm. All, all of the females were dressed in a set, uh, other than different hair colors. Ah. They were dressed in pretty much the same freaking thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just kind of like a, a 40s ish slip. Yep. And uh, yeah, sometimes little short pants, short hot pants. Um, yeah. So. Anyway. What did you uh, think of the the movement qualities of this show, Fonda? Um, yeah. 
I'm going to maybe go against the grain here. I know I may anger some So You Think You Can Dance fans and fans of Travis Wall, but I thought that the choreography was a little lacking, um, mm. particularly where it came to the female roles. They were either being lifted and and uh, flipped about or um, just kind of snapping their fingers and not doing much. Uh, it didn't... Um, the, the choreography where it came to... Um, Travis Wall's alter ego, I thought, um, played by Lex Ishimoto, he mm-hmm. was great. Um, he had, he was actually one of the more distinctive dancers because he had these sort of like amazing barrel roll uh, turnstile jump kicks mm-hmm. that were like awesome, but and also looked very different than everything else. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, I I felt the it was yes they were trying to tell the story. The story was super clear. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, it didn't really allow you to kind of like enjoy enjoy the movement or enjoy the bodies that much. Um, it didn't there. I I didn't feel that they showed off their actual dance skills because they are really talented people up there. Right. Uh, to me, this this whole show felt very uh, much. It was very spectacle driven. It was sort of uh, in the vein of like a Cirque du Soleil or So You Think You Can Dance. It was about sort of like showing these. Um, these cool uh, moments and setting them up. A lot of them didn't necessarily involve dance. Sometimes it was um, visual spectacle. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were sort of these, there were a couple dances, um, uh, one of which was a sequence where most of the dances were dancers were in the dark mm-hmm. uh, and they had these sort of glowing orbs and they were lights. And so they were doing these sort of coordinated light dances. Well, I think Travis Wall, I think just one dancer, was sort of doing, doing, uh, more or less a, a solo in air quotes. Yeah, um, yeah. It was. I think it was Travis Wall and the and the lover. I think played by yeah. Lazzarini and Isabel right, right, when right. The, when the, the he and the lover sort of get separated. It was a very sad moment. But both of the moments in the show actually, which were visually the most interesting. Um, to me, were where you couldn't see most of the dancers at all, and they were more light tricks. Right. So it was that one, and there was also one of uh, paper, sort of like blue light or black light paper. So it was sort of glowing against things, and would sort of like form shapes and coordinated paper dances and things yeah. like that. And it was kind of interesting. You know, you heard the sound of the typewriter, and then all of this paper looks like it goes flying about. Um, so that looked kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, oddly, the papers all turned into a person shape. Sure, yeah. That was just weird. <laughs> right. But other than that, they were sort of flitting around. They would freeze because now they were being controlled by the, the rest of the cast and sort of do these coordinated movements together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was so it felt um, very, yeah, uh, about sort of making this big spectacle, mm-hmm. uh, which I think it did. It was a very uh, spectacular show in the sense of there was a lot of spectacle. Yeah, big sets, moving, moving sets. Mm-hmm. Um, there was flying yeah. in the show. Travis Wall flies twice in it. Um, I don't know that it served the story super well, but it was, but it was a big spectacle <laughs> moment, a big right? moment, and there were very, very bright lights, which burned my eyes. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so so I think uh, I think they were chasing spectacle and they they achieved that, but maybe um, uh, some of the the depth and even showing off some of the the prowess of the dance. If you go through the the cast notes, you know all of these people have incredible training and uh, myriad styles of dance um, and various experiences with either the show. So you think you can dance or touring dance, mm-hmm. um, and there so there were some moments of like there was a tap dance, there was a sequence where yeah, it was sort of two. Two performers tapping, and there was sort of a narrative thing happening on stage as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the focus was on the narrative. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, which is interesting in, you know, when we started doing this podcast, I might have like used that as a crutch and been like, good, <laughs> thank God I understand everything. Thank God there's a story here. <laughs> right. And so so maybe something like this does help people bring them into to dance for, for people who aren't used to, to dance. Yeah. Uh, they get to see, um, you know, uh, a narrative told in a way they wouldn't normally. And, you know, for them, it might be a little more obtuse, yeah. uh, but, but understandable in, in this way. So maybe... The next time they they go to a dance show, if if they ever go to another mm-hmm. dance show, um, they're more willing to sort of take a few further steps down the road. Yeah, yeah, I I see that you know like telling it in this sort of like I mean the the style of dance is really lyrical contemporary, mm-hmm. um, and I think one of the things I really enjoy when I'm watching contemporary dance is that is that chance to sit back and really chew on something that mm-hmm. I don't get. Right. Um and there was there there wasn't a lot of that in this. There was really just kind of like this is how you get this is what you get. This is how you should feel about this leg kick. Um you know, from the music and from the like expression and lighting. And and that's sort of it, you know, like you're you're left feeling like okay, and the show is over and um you know, it's I, I don't think choreography like this will really last like something like, you know, when we were in the car kind of driving, uh, um, leaving the show. Uh, I said, you know, it's different when you see something like Paul Taylor dance when they've had choreography from the 60s and 70s that mm-hmm. still is just like, wow, that is pure dance. And that still has resonance with dancers and audiences today. Whereas I don't know, I don't know that a show like this has that much staying power. Right. It's it's sort of about these, these big, spectacular, in the moment um, show. But yeah, as far as the, the choreography, I, yeah. Yeah, are dancers going to want to learn this to learn about what dance is like now? Um, mm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, In any case, yeah, that was our first sort of So You Think You Can Dance kind of like mainstream show thing. That yeah. Was like, yeah, there's a thing. Okay, um, next up we saw uh, The Sash Maker at Spacio Performativo as part of uh, Mile Zero's Dance Crush series. Right, right. It's a choreography uh, choreographed by Rebecca Sadowski, uh, and it was performed by... Ayla Modest, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that's how I'm, uh, how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and it was uh, it was a mix. It was dance and uh, poetry, so it wasn't just Ayla. It was uh, Naomi McIlrath. I think so. Yeah. Let's maybe take yeah. a moment and figure that out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess it all kind of started because Naomi uh, McIlrath and Rebecca Sadowski were working as uh, cultural interpreters together at Fort Edmonton Park, mm-hmm. and um, they really got interested in their Métis heritage and decided to try and do a collaboration um, based on the tradition, the Métis tradition of the sash and sash making. Mm-hmm. So uh, as far as the, the narrative of story or of this piece, it's sort of about... Um, someone learning to learning to make sashes, but also sort of the um, how that that culture uh, changed in in the face of sort of uh, colonialism and and the settler uh, appearing and and what that uh, looked like and 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 felt like. I yeah. think from the perspective of a sash maker, yeah, and the cultural implications of um, you know. Uh, new materials being brought in um, with the sash making. There was an interesting talk afterwards um, t- about the the history of the sash and how it started changing um, in under under you know settler culture. And um, I, the performer um, Ayla Modest, I don't believe I've seen her in anything before in Edmonton, but um, man, really enjoyed watching her movement. Um, she had this very 
serene and um, kind of calming quality. Mm. Um, it seemed like there was um, so the the setup was it was a stage in the round. The audience is placed around the um, sort of uh, large sash in the middle, um, mm-hmm. which is a you know one string with a lot of yarns coming down from it um, mm-hmm. in the different colors. And um, and at one point in the show, she actually uses the audience members who are placed around the room to help her weave a bit of the sash. Right, it's just essentially hold, hold one lines. stitch. But mm-hmm. <laughs> like you really see how it kind of starts coming together and how the hand weaving actually happens, um, which I thought was kind of a very interesting moment. Right. And then uh, while, while all, the, all the dance is going on, Naomi is reading poetry that sort of gives it a narrative arc and sort of explains the, the mood and the, the shifts in mood and, and, and such. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, narrative for this was a lot more abstract, but there were also some pretty intense moments, um, which I think the energy got really high. Um, the dancer moved much more quickly, used the whole space um, and felt a lot more frenetic. I felt you could really like go with her on the arc of the show. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, which I think when you're when you're in such close proximity to dance, like in in a space like uh, Mile Zero, uh, Spazio Performativo, when we're all sort of around it, you know, you're never more than like 15 feet away from the dancer, and you know, you're all more or less in the same lighting, um, so you feel already closer. And and in this case, like you're being brought in, there's you know, people are being handed yarn and, and mm-hmm. connected with yarn, and and shown the sort of power of that um, that connection and culture and and sharing that. Yeah. Um, do you think that it could work in a, in a larger space with like a large audience? I would be uh, I would be interested to see how it would be structured if it was in, say, a, a quote, traditional theater, like a proscenium uh, theater, um, something like that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think even in that situation in the round was uh, playing to the strength of it and sort of having to surround the um the the dancer and the the sash being made uh, brought us in in a really interesting way and sort of connected you uh, as well as being able to see the rest of the audience like it's mm-hmm. it's something you're always aware is performance uh, yeah, in yeah. this telling because you can see the audience yeah you can you can really see everyone and their expressions and because the room isn't super big um, you know when when you can tell when there's someone who's on like a bad date and they totally don't want to be there which was <laughs> one one person you saw. <laughs> Um, just like not in a good mood, eyes hands crossed the whole time. But and I, you know, it's just like that's too bad. There's some there's some great dance going on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I thought it was a great movement and mm-hmm. and sort of the the narrative parts, the sort of poetry and the movement and the the scoring of it really worked well to convey the mood and the sentiment and express. Uh, express the various feelings that sort of were were part of it. Yeah, I I really appreciated some of the the dancing that was being done. There was I, I don't know a ton about um, Métis dance styles, um, but you could tell that there were some steps that are you know rooted in in that tradition, and um, and also a lot of contemporary. Um, and there's some really very. Um, quiet and calm moments with just sort of like the sound of water and like almost almost no movement but um the poet still speaking about um uh you know traditions of like grandfathers was like this story about a bear i don't remember mm-hmm. a lot of the text but um really did really enjoyed enjoyed the performance and appreciated the little bit of education that we got afterwards on the uh metis sash tradition as well as an actual weaving demonstration that you could have done and learned how to uh how to make 
a little bit of a sash yourself. Right, right. Which in the discussion, you know, the uh, uh, the guest who was talking uh, talked about uh, how it took, you know, uh, a traditional sash would might take a hundred hours, and mm-hmm. I think uh, I think everyone uh, felt that uh, when they were given their little bit and was like, oh, like, oh yeah, this wow. is intensive. <laughs> it took me like six or seven minutes just to make this one stitch. How the heck did you make a sash like that that goes around your waist like four times? Yeah, um, yeah. So so that was that was pretty cool. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean that's kind of our our January. Like, yeah. wow, we've done we did a ton. Yeah, you did you did more. Thank thank you. <laughs> um, but there's more things happening in January, Fonda. What else is happening, Paul? If I may, Anita Sarkeesian is coming to Edmonton with the Edmonton Public Library's Forward Thinking Speakers Series uh, on January 24th at Chateau Lacombe. Uh, it's an event that's being presented in partnership with the Edmonton Community Foundation, and you can hear an interview with Sarkeesian on episode 16 of the Well Endowed podcast presented by the Edmonton Community Foundation. If you don't know, Anita Sarkeesian is the founder and executive producer of Feminist Frequency, an educational nonprofit that explores representation of women in pop culture narratives. Her focus is on deconstructing stereotypes and tropes associated with women and on highlighting issues around the targeted harassment of women in gaming and online. T- uh, ticket link to uh, to the series and and the show uh, is in the episode notes of our website. So check it out. Yeah, it's going to be great. Um, so yeah, that's that's all we've got for now. There's still ten. Onyegin uh, um, and Shakespeare's R and J are still running uh, for another week and a bit. There's so. even more shows happening right now. There's the Listening Room happening at the Arts Barns. There is Soiled Doves. Send in the girls. Burlesque is uh, doing their latest show. Also running right now, so just get out and see some things, everybody. Yeah, no shortage of things to do and no excuse to stay at home. All right, well, uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. I Don't Get It is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or check us out on albertapodcastnetwork.com or the CKUA radio app. I Don't Get It is recorded on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta, in the Edmonton Community Foundation's podcast studio. Our theme music is Mountain Time by Ghibli, and you can find more of Ghibli's music by going to ghibli.bandcamp.com. I Don't Get It is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonda Mithrush, and Paul Blenoff.